On December 7, 1941, first bomb would hit Pearl Harbor at 7.55. Shortly after that, coming in from the north, would have been three torpedo planes coming in treetop level somewhere between 20 to 33 feet off the water. Three torpedoes would be dropped in this general vicinity, of which two would hit the port side of the USS Utah. A vantage ship is called. History is strange. It's alien. And it won't give us what we would like to have. Welcome back to the Florida Roundtable. My name's Bill Mick, and glad you're along for this uh, weekly conversation about life in Florida on the Florida News Network. My guest this week is Dave Bowman, a friend, a comrade, a historian, and uh, we met when we were both working in radio. Actually, he wasn't in radio yet, but uh, when we were working radio in Modesto, California, and he eventually ended up working with us, and it's an honor to have him along as we take a look at a day that still lives in infamy. Dave Bowman, it's good to uh, have you along, my friend. Thank you for being here. It's good to be here. You are someone who takes a very unique view of history. It's a passion. You have dug into so many things that we've talked through the years. Let's talk about December 7th, 1941 a bit. Well, December 7th, 1941 is a day which, as you said, lives in infamy. But it's also one of those seminal days in history that, for the better part of a hundred years, people who were alive then can always tell you exactly where they were when they heard about it, those that were there. For those of sure. us that weren't there, it, it, it becomes a, a focal point that we want to know more about. Why did this happen? How did this happen? And... There are literally libraries full of stories, books, articles about what happened that day, why it happened that day, how it happened that day. But even in all of that, there are stories that get, I don't want to say lost, but some stories have more um, gravitas than others, I guess, is the best way to say it. Some stories we just sort of gloss over because they're not as... I don't know what the word for it is. Maybe not as glamorous, which is a bad well, word to use. Well, it was such use. a tragic day. What it led us to and what went on after, everything was so big that there are hidden stories in some of these stories that we're just, if people like you weren't digging into them, we wouldn't know. One of the things that bothers me the most about Pearl Harbor, not just as a historian, but as a sailor myself who's been to Pearl Harbor, is you, you start realizing when you're walking around there, you start realizing that the Pacific War started at 7.55 a.m. And by 8.05 a.m., 10 minutes later, there were men who would never, there, there were men who would never get to serve anymore in that war. They had already died. It, it's just, it, it's a very heavy weight when you look at it, it's a very heavy thing to think about because these were men who were dedicated to their service. They were dedicated to what they were going to do. And they knew, as most Americans did, that war with Japan was coming. Whether they were looking forward to it, whether they were concerned about it, really not the relevant issue. But, but to think that 10 minutes into this war, into the entirety of the war, not just the battle, but 10 minutes into that, over 2,000 Americans had already been killed. You know, for those of us that were around on 9-11, there's a similar feeling 
but I don't Absolutely. know that it's I don't know that it has the same impact because this December seventh attack was it, it was intended to start a war that was intended to defeat the United States and bring us not necessarily down but certainly put us out of out of the conflict and the destruction that happened that day was targeted it was intended to be destructive to the ways that we did things it was intended to destroy our fleet and at the end of the day people thought that maybe it had but as we know the, the longer story it really didn't but i focus today particularly on 64 of those men who never got out of their ships and 15 minutes into the the second world war for the united states their war was over that's hard to think about in those terms. But like you said, relating it back to 9-11, we understand how that happens that quickly. Of course, 9-11 that day drug out for a while. Right. Much longer. This than, was much longer than Pearl Harbor did. Yeah, this was immediate for those guys. Yeah. And we're going to dig into it. And a little bit of a Florida connection as we continue with the Florida Roundtable in moments. to the Florida Roundtable on the Florida News Network. I'm Bill Mick. Our guest today, historian Dave Bowman, as we take a look at December 7th, 1941, and uh, a little, I don't want to say inside story, but a little less no, lesser known story, a little more in-depth, Dave, than what we may have looked at it in the past. It, it, it certainly is. And it's not just that it's a lesser known story. It's that for most of the last 85 years, the average person, the the tourist going to Pearl Harbor, couldn't even get to this story. So you either had to be in the Navy or you had to have special permission to get on the base to actually go to this place to see this event. But we start in the year 1909. In the year 1909, the United States was like most naval powers of that day, trying to develop the ultimate battleship. Now, battleships were, in those days, known as dreadnoughts, after the British ship, the dreadnought. And the United States had experimented around with some of these things, and eventually they came up with what they called the super dreadnoughts. And one of the variants of these, cla of these ships, the, the, the United States Navy calls them classes, one of these classes was named after the great state of Florida. These would be known as the Florida-class battleships. There All were right, two good. of them, the USS Florida and the ship we're going to talk about today, the USS Utah. By the time of World War II, the Florida is gone. She's out of date and not really involved at all from that point on. The Utah is laid down. That means construction begins in 1909, and she is commissioned in 1911. Almost immediately after that, we, of course, World War I breaks out, but in the United States, it's 
war with Mexico or kind of a quasi-war with Mexico. And the Utah and the Florida are sent to Veracruz, Mexico, and it's the USS Utah that carries the Marines that land at Veracruz and occupy Veracruz in 1914. It's one of those little incidents in American history that we don't like to talk about. But this little conflict with Pancho Villa during the, during the Mexican Revolution did cause the United States to actually invade Mexico in 1914, led by the USS Utah. After that, she was sent to Ireland during World War I. She was part of the convoy escort system. She spent a lot of time uh, stationed in Ireland over there. And then after the war, modernized a bit you know, repainted, crews changed, things like that. Warships, uh, they tend to stick around for a while, but they did a lot of practicing, a lot of training and that sort of thing. And in 1928, when President Herbert Hoover was elected, Utah was chosen to carry the president-elect on his tour of South America. For reasons that are beyond the scope of where we are now, he wanted to go see South America, and it was the Utah that was chosen to carry him on his trip down there to see, you know, what's going on in South America, show the flag is what we like to call it. And the Utah went down there and brought him back successfully. And it was, you know, it's quite a feather in your cap as a, as a ship to be allowed to do that, to carry the president, or in this case, the president-elect around. Later on, there would be ships that would carry other presidents, and they would be, uh, to this day, uh, the USS Iowa, you can go see the Franklin Delano, Delano Roosevelt bathtub that they had specially installed for him on the Iowa. So this is one of those things that in a ship's history gets really played up. But the problem is she's starting to get old and she's starting to get out of date. Along with the Florida, these were ships that were built and designed in the early 1900s. And by the time 1930 rolls around, they are not quite obsolete, but not really useful. They're not fast. They're not, they're not as, as heavily armed as some of the other ships are. And their armor is substandard, I guess, would be the best way to put it. And so they start looking around for other things to do with these ships. And then along comes the 1930 London Naval Treaty, which actually is an agreement to limit the number of battleships that each independent country has. The United States is limited in the number it can have, and so it decides that the older ships just need to go away. We don't have any place for them. We don't have any use for them. We don't have, any, we don't have anything to do with them. The Florida, unfortunately, is sent away, scrapped. But the Utah, they take and say, okay, we need to train. We can't have her as a battleship. So what we're going to do is we are going to convert her into a, what they were going to call, radio-controlled target ship. Now, Bill, this is 1930. We don't think about radio-controlled stuff being relevant to 1930. That seems like no. science fiction. It seems like Buck Rogers almost. And at the time, it kind of was. It was an interesting idea. It doesn't mean that the ship is going to be completely automatic. In fact, uh, what they're going to do is after they install all this radio control equipment that another ship can control it, 
They still have to have a crew on board to run the engines and stuff like that, but they're going to put a bunch of railroad timbers, logs, that kind of stuff on the deck so that when they drop bombs on this ship, the crew underneath is safe, relatively, anyway. Now, they're only using water bombs, so it theoretically... Not an assignment I want, Dave. No. It doesn't seem like the most glamorous assignment in the Navy, does it? It just... No. It's kind of a weird thing. They do convert her to a radio-controlled target ship. They spend a lot of time practicing with it and, and getting it to work because, you know, again, radio, in its relative infancy, and it takes time to do this. But they successfully pull this off, and Utah becomes this radio-controlled target ship that sails around the oceans of the, of the world, being a target for the rest of the Navy. So they use it to train other battleships. Newer battleships are regularly firing at her all the time. Um, they use it for airplane bombing training. So at this point, the Navy has three aircraft carriers, Lexington, Saratoga, and Langley. And these guys need to practice how to actually hit a ship with a bomb. And so they're, they're out there practicing. Now, I always imagine the guy that's doing the radio-controlled stuff. Now, I know how the Navy works. So the Navy has told this guy, whoever he is, you know, go this far, this direction, then turn this way, this direction for this amount of time. But I always wonder if he just kind of said, you know, I'm going to try to I'm going to try to mess with these bombers and see if I can see if I can avoid their bombs just as kind of a game thing. I don't know. I I feel like he probably I can see did that. Yeah. Knowing my friends who were sailors, Dave, I can see you doing that. Yeah, and and see, the beautiful thing about that is you can always claim that the radio thing didn't work right. Well, I didn't do it, because <laughs> it's so new, who knows? Sure. But for years, the the Utah trains these bombers, it trains the other gunners in the Navy, and it does such a good job of this. That's the amazing part, But it's but it's also very expensive, because radio equipment isn't cheap at least not in the 1930s and early 40s. Right. So while she does a good job, she does such a good job of it that they keep her long beyond the time where she probably should have been uh, either decommissioned or or replaced. But in the process of this, they start realizing that there's other things that they need to train uh, sailors to do. So they start installing anti-aircraft guns on the Utah and they use her to now she's not only the target but she's also training the gunners the anti-aircraft gunners who are shooting at these airplanes that are trying to attack her so she's getting both ends of this for well, that also serve to train the pilots as they are facing anti-aircraft fire i guess a little bit i would imagine um yeah it's kind of a unique thing if you think about it i mean she's She's on both ends of this thing, and she's the only one we have that does this. There, there's, there's a lot of ships in the Navy, but this is the only one we have that, that can do all this. In the meantime, and this is the important part to remember, she still has to have this engineering crew. She still has to have the snipes. She still has to have the people that run the engines and the electronics and all those kind of things. All those people are still aboard, even though she's not technically a quote-unquote warship in the sense of combat but she is training all these guys and all these all these anti-aircraft gunners 
that will soon in World War II become so imperative to every ship in the fleet, they're being trained by USS Utah to get ready for that. She is she has her maiden turrets removed. The big battleship turrets are taken off. They're replaced by uh, big bulky boxes or by anti-aircraft guns. And eventually, she they redesignate her as a training ship. She hadn't actually been redesignated yet, but now she's redesignated as a training ship. And she's sent to be refit and repainted and all of this kind of stuff in the summer of 1941. After that, she is sent, like the rest of the fleet, to this really remote place that's kind of unknown to most people at that point. It's called Pearl Harbor. It's in Hawaii. And it's this natural anchorage that everybody likes to a degree, but it also has some problems. Number one, Pearl Harbor is extremely shallow, and that causes some problems that if we have time, we'll get into. But if not, uh, but the, the biggest problem that they have with Pearl Harbor is there's only one way in or out. So if that way gets blocked, you've blocked up the harbor. You, you can't get ships in or out. But the government, the United States government, decides to move the Pacific Fleet to Pearl Harbor from San Diego because it's closer to Japan. And tensions with Japan are becoming very, very, very strong. In fact, on December 6th, 1941, Franklin Delano Roosevelt will send a telegraph to Emperor Hirohito in which he will all but beg Emperor Hirohito to do whatever he can to try and limit the tensions. Things are becoming dangerously upset. Can you please intervene with your government and stop these tensions? That's on December 6th, which is, of course, a Saturday in 1941. And the next morning, all hell is going to break loose. It's a heck of a story about the Utah, where it came from, what it ended up being, and how it ended up in Pearl Harbor, Dave. It is. It's a heck of a story, and it has, like I said, a couple of connections here. One, she's a Florida-class ship. But number two, in 1984, a 21-year-old sailor on USS Michigan uh, finally gets to visit her, and he, of course, is from Utah. So it's the special. That day that lives in infamy is next on the Florida Roundtable. Back, I'm Bill Mick on the Florida Roundtable on the Florida News Network. Our guest this week, historian Dave Bowman, as we take a look at an anniversary from this week, Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. In our first couple of segments, Dave's outlined the history of the Florida-class battleship Utah that's no longer a battleship but a training vessel for the U.S. Navy. And, Dave, we took it up the Saturday night and into Sunday morning of December 7th, 1941. Catch us up with where we're going. So the Utah, as I said, is a training ship. And this means that she is not the glamour ship. She's not the ships that get to be in the movies with Jimmy Cagney and and those folks. In fact, there's a 
a film that features the Arizona. That's not the Utah. She doesn't get any of those accolades. In fact, when she's in Pearl Harbor, she moors at a berth known as Fox 11, F-11. It's on the west side of Fort Island, which divides Pearl Harbor essentially in half. As you come in from the south entrance of Pearl Harbor, you get Fort Island is kind of in the middle. You either have to go to the right or you have to go to the left. The the prevailing traffic pro, uh, plan is you go to the right, you sail around the north end of Fort Island, and you come to, to Berth Fox 11, which is very quiet. It's on the far side of Fort Island, which is disconnected from the mainland. So if you're a Utah sailor and you want to go on Liberty, first you got to get off the ship onto Fort Island. Then you've got to cross Fort Island, which if we had the time, I would tell you about the night we did that after my 21st birthday party. It's not as easy as it seems. Uh, you get to the far side of the island. You got to wait for the ferry, the Liberty launch. Then you got to take the Liberty launch over to the main base. And then you can go into Waikiki or Honolulu or wherever you're going. It's, it's a good hour trip. So the Utah sailors are they're in the remote section of the of the harbor it's not quite the most remote section but it's pretty close they're they're not the the super you know star sailor they're not the people that are being really feted everywhere they go because they're there this is where the aircraft carriers would normally berth but the aircraft carriers are gone right now. They're all out to sea because they're fast enough, and we want, we're, they're on other missions. Remember, everyone knew that war with Japan was coming. And so the carriers had been sent out to, to take airplanes to other bases. And Utah ends up in Fox 11. When the Japanese get ready to attack here, they are focusing primarily on two classes of ships that they want to hit. They want to hit the aircraft carriers because they understand the importance of those. And they want to hit the battleships because the battleships represent the ability to interfere with the Japanese plans. The, the air crews that are involved here, which are particularly from the two carriers, Soryu and Hiryu, are highly trained to identify these American ships by their, by their silhouette. And as these planes are coming in, at 7.55 a.m., they begin to look over the harbor and see that there are no aircraft carriers in the berth. That means that they've got to turn uh, slightly to the south, loop around the south end of Fort Island so that they can hit the battleships over on the east side. That's the, the written plan. But as we know, as George Patton once said, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And while the leaders of the torpedo plane sections realize that the Utah is not an aircraft carrier and they peel off to go around, the last six planes don't realize this. For some reason, they see Utah as this massive aircraft carrier target. And maybe in the excitement of combat, who knows, they dive in on Utah and they launch six torpedoes at the USS Utah. Again, essentially a demilitarized target ship, which is not really a worthwhile target. I've actually seen an interview with one of these pilots 
who talks about the fact that 80 years later, he's still embarrassed by this, by the fact that they mistook Utah for something that it wasn't. Of these six torpedoes that are launched, two will hit home. Two will actually strike the ship, which is at anchor at Fox 11. And these two torpedoes, of course, rip holes in the sides of the ship. Now, this is going on all over the harbor. On the other side of the island, you've got Oklahoma, West Virginia, California, Nevada are all being hit by torpedoes. They're all being uh, torn open. Oklahoma is going to roll over and sink. Uh, West Virginia will sink. California is, is on fire. And of course, 10 minutes into this whole attack, a bomb strikes the magazine of the USS Arizona, which detonates and instantly kills 1,100 people aboard the USS wow. Arizona. The the most famous photographs and films you've seen of Pearl Harbor almost all feature that explosion, which was caught on film. You can't quite see the bomb going in, but you definitely see the result. And Arizona will burn for more than two days uh, from, the, from the oil that's left uh, there. And of course, to this day, you can go visit the USS Arizona, which has this huge memorial built over it. You go to Pearl Harbor. You take the launch over from the Arizona Memorial Center, they take you over there, you see the chapel, you see the whole thing, and you come back. But at the same time, USS Utah is beginning to list to port. And the the crew, which is very small, realizes very quickly that they're probably not going to be able to save this. Number one, they don't have the equipment to do it. But number two, these are massive holes that have been ripped into the side of this ship, which doesn't have a lot of torpedo protection because it doesn't need it. It's a training ship. Nobody should be shooting torpedoes at it in the first place. In fact, right. not even the submarine fleet uses the Utah as a training vessel because they can't risk these torpedoes accidentally hitting it and, and ripping holes in the sides of it. Utah begins to sink. There's a very famous photograph uh, taken from her uh, from from behind her as she's she's beginning to to roll to start to port, the crew begins to abandon the ship because they've got to get out of here. All this is going on while planes are screaming over, strafing anything they can find. Where sa American sailors are beginning to fight back. One of the most amazing things about Pearl Harbor is that very few people realize how quickly the United States sailors were able to respond, and, and the Army Air Force as well. We got planes in the air to, to fight back. It wasn't, there's this myth that, you know, Pearl Harbor is a complete surprise and we just laid there and, and didn't do anything. That's not true. By the early moments of the attack, we were shooting back. We were shooting down airplanes. We were trying to, to do things on the West Virginia. They're counter flooding to make sure that she settles on an even keel. Again, the harbor is very shallow, so even a sunken battleship is really only sunk almost up to the, to the main deck. I mean, they're still above water, which means that they can still fight, and they continue to do so. But Utah doesn't have anything to fight with. She doesn't have any ammunition. She only has a few light anti-aircraft guns, even if she did have ammunition. Most of that's been removed. It's been replaced with, with the bomb protection. What do we do? The only thing we can do is get out. And so the order to, get, to abandon ship is given. The crew begins to 
leave the ship because we got to get out of here. The problem, Bill, is that most people don't, I don't know, it's hard to explain this to people who aren't sailors. Getting out of a ship that's leaning over, that's listing really badly, that's flooding, that is under attack. Number one, getting out of a ship that's under normal conditions is not that easy. I mean, think about all, if you're in the bottom of that ship, you got to go up ladders. There's no, you can't use elevators. You got to go up the ladders. You got to run down passageways that are thin, that have, uh, you know, these things we call kneecappers where you, you know, if you don't lift your knees right, you, you ram your knee into them. You, you got to get out of this thing. It's probably dark and there's a lot of confusion going on. And now you add in the fact that the ship is leaning over at this point, about 30 degrees, take your office and just lean it over 30 degrees and tell me how easy it would be to get out. I can see the door behind you. It wouldn't be that easy, would it? Because no, then you got to try to get that door open. These guys are trying to get out. It's getting dark. It's getting dangerous. And 64 of them are not going to make it. But the vast majority of the crew of about 400 will. And ultimately, most of them will make it out because one man will make sure that they get that opportunity. One man who is deep in the bowels of the Utah understands that in order to get out, they got to be able to see. And he makes sure that they can continue to escape the terror that is the sinking of the Utah. We tell you the rest of the story as the Florida Roundtable continues in moments here on the Florida News Network. Dave, a little surprise. They were controlling the sinkage of some of these ships to be able to continue to fight and make sure they didn't jam up the harbor. Yes, especially on the West Virginia and the California. They, they did a great job of damage control. And we're back in moments. Florida Roundtable continues. I'm Bill Mick, along with historian Dave Bowman, as we take a look back, a unique look at December 7th, 1941, anniversary of that event this week, and Dave bringing us a look at history that you just don't get to see anywhere. Dave, I really appreciate that. Thanks for taking the time today. So the Utah is a training vessel. Japanese attack planes mistake it for, at least some of them, mistake it for a battleship, which it is no longer. It's a training vessel, and it's been attacked, and it's going to sink. It's in the process. Not only is it going to sink, but it's going to roll over and sink. Now, if you know anything about the attack of Pearl Harbor, you know that the Oklahoma also rolls over completely. Utah is headed that direction. Um, And as she begins to roll over, the crew is ordered to abandon ship, but will there be time to get everybody out of there? Again, most of this crew... You say there were some 400 people on this ship. I, I would have thought that was a little much for a training vessel. Except that, again, she has to have an entire engineering crew, and she has mm-hmm. to have all the people that handle the electronics and that kind of stuff. Your okay, average so it's battle- bigger than I thought. Yeah, keep in mind that the average battleship is around 2,000, if not higher. Um, okay. So she's you know, a skeleton crew in the big thing scheme of things. Most of this crew, again, is down in the engine room. They're down in the, the bottom of the ship, and it's going to take time to get out. Down there in the engine room is a guy who is the chief water tender. He's a chief petty officer. 
And a water tender is someone who maintains the water that goes to the boilers that make that keeps the boilers running. Keep in mind that Utah has to have a boiler running because she needs electrical power. So she he's running all the power that's powering everything on the ship. Lights, all that kind of stuff that people are going to need to get out. And just because it's 8 o'clock in the morning doesn't mean that there's sunlight, you know, down deep in the ship. His name is Peter Tomic, and he is a Croatian immigrant to the United States. He came to the United States in 1913. When he got here, he enlisted in the United States Army, where he served with distinction, I guess, in the, in the First World War. When the First World War one, First World War ended, he was you know, looking around for something to do, and he joined the Navy in 1919, where he continues to serve. And by 1941, he is the chief water tender aboard USS Utah. He's the he's the main enlisted engineering type aboard USS Utah, and he is the guy that's in charge of making sure that the lights stay on while people are trying to get out. As the story goes, Chief Tomich stayed at his post, shutting down the boilers because if the water had come in with the flooding, the boilers could have exploded, which would have killed many more people. He stays in there working on shutting down the boilers and keeping the lights on while the rest of the crew escapes. For distinguished conduct in the line of his profession, for extraordinary courage and the disregard of his own safety during the attack on the fleet at Pearl Harbor by Japanese forces on December 7, 1941, Chief Tomich is awarded the Medal of Honor, the highest award that our nation has to offer aboard a ship that nobody would have given a second thought to. Although realizing that the ship was capsizing, Tomich remained at his post in the engineering plant of the USS Utah and saw that all the boilers were secured and all fire room personnel had left their stations. And by doing so, he's lost his own life. It isn't until 1944 that he receives his medal. But it is an amazing story that of the survivors of the ship, now there will be 64 men who die aboard Utah. But of the crew of 400 plus, most of them get out. And the vast majority of them get out because Chief Tomich stays at his post, makes sure that the lights stay on, makes sure that the boilers don't explode, and makes sure that they, they leave. Imagine telling your, your crew, get out. The order has been given, abandon ship. You go. I will stay here and make sure that this is safe. And that's what he does. And again, I think it's important to keep in mind that this is an immigrant. This is, in many ways, what America is in 1940, a melting pot of people who have come to this country for a better opportunity, and in the moment when it's most important, he serves not only his new adopted country, but his shipmates as well. You know, Dave, that it just brings to mind Tom Brokaw and his book, The Greatest Generation, and the mentality and the, the resolve of those men that were serving at that time. It is one of hundreds of amazing stories from this day. And unfortunately, it's one of the lesser known stories, which is why we're talking about it today. 
Well, hopefully we make it a much more known story. And I appreciate you bringing it to the table here on the Florida Roundtable. We'll be back to close our day on the Florida News Network in moments. Florida Roundtable. I'm Bill Mick, along with historian Dave Bowman, who's just told us an amazing story about the uh, USS Utah and Chief Tomich, who sacrificed himself so the men on that ship that could get out would survive. Dave, it's an amazing tale. And like you said, there are hundreds, if not thousands of these that we don't know the individuals. We don't know what happened here. And I appreciate this story you brought to us today. I think as as detailed as the history of Pearl Harbor is, these stories there's there's they'll never all be known. I do know this. I grew up in Utah. I consider myself for many years to be a Utah. And in 1984, November of 1984, USS Michigan, my ship, arrived at Pearl Harbor, and we tied up at Berth Fox 12, which is literally just forward of of Fox 11. And when I was able to get off the ship and uh, make my way over there, it was one of the first things I did was to go see the memorial for the USS Utah. Now, again, this is a memorial that most people cannot visit because it is on an active Navy base, and you have to have permission to get on the base. It's not like the Arizona, where you can take a ferry over and get on the the memorial, which is separate. Which it, I did, which I was in right. when I was in my Air National Guard days over there. Sure. But most people never even know about the Utah. They don't go over there. But for me, it was a a very reflective and, and personal moment. Chief Tomich was awarded uh, the Medal of Honor in 1944. But in 1947, uh, the medal was returned to the United States Navy because, sadly, uh, Chief Tomich has no, had no living relatives that could be located. The state of Utah stepped up made him an honorary citizen of the state of Utah, and there was a presentation of the medal to the state in the rotunda of the Capitol as a guardian of the man of a man who immigrated to America and died in the first moments of the Pacific War, serving his adopted country and his shipmates. And I think that as we approach yet another anniversary of Pearl Harbor, as we lose more and more of the Pearl Harbor survivors, I think it's appropriate to take the time today to remember the men of USS Utah and Chief Peter Tomich and all of the losses, December 7th, 1941. You know, as we look at this and you think of that Florida-class battleship that had served so long, built in 1909, converted eventually in its older days to a training vessel and still producing a hero like Chief Tomich on that day in 1941. Amazing story. Dave Bowman, I really appreciate that. Glad to be here to tell it. And hopefully if people go to Pearl Harbor, try to go to the Utah Memorial. 
You can find Dave Bowman at thedavebowmanshow.com, also with davedoeshistory.org, davedoeshistory.org. And uh, Dave, I'll look forward to having you back on another occasion when we have the opportunity to do just such an hour. I'm looking forward to it, Bill. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. This is the Florida Roundtable on the Florida News and Entertainment Network. We appreciate that you've joined us here for the conversation this weekend. When we come back next week, we're going to talk to Jim Banky. He has been a decades-long space reporter, and Jim is going to talk about Florida, America's space program, the impact thereof all around this great state. Again, it's been the Florida Roundtable on the Florida News Network. My name's Bill Mick. You can catch up with me. Send us questions or show suggestions, if you like, from my website at BillMick.com. We'll talk space next week on the Florida Roundtable.